Hello and welcome to the Alcohol Problem Podcast. I'm Dr. James Morris, an alcohol researcher interested in harmful drinking and addiction issues. This stems in part from my own experiences, so the show aims to explore a range of lived and academic perspectives relating to the question of what really is an alcohol problem. In this episode, I talk to journalist and TV broadcaster Adrian Childs, the man behind the widely applauded 2018 BBC documentary, Drinkers Like Me. The programme has been credited with prompting a national conversation about alcohol use, and Adrian has continued to explore the subject and is writing a book about how to drink less. I spoke to Adrian about his journey and key questions relating to drinking in moderation. So thanks so much for joining me, Adrian. As you know, I contacted you after the Drinkers Like Me documentary, which I just thought was fantastic. You know, it really just showed that alcohol problems are not just confined to you know the stereotypes of, of alcoholics as it is. And you may have heard about the Adrian Charles effect in which a lot of alcohol support services and apps uh, reported a spike in use and visits after the documentary ad. Um, can you tell me a bit about the story behind the Drinkers Like Me documentary and do you have any main sort of reflections on it a year or so on? I've got plenty. Well, the, the main thing is that in the street, there's three things that I've been badgered about over the years when I get recognised for people. Um, for a long, well, for firstly, it was a long time, it was about the one show. Then it was all anybody ever wanted to talk about was whether West Brom were going to get relegated. Then the next thing was when I lost my job at ITV, it was, oh, it's you. You're not on the telly anymore. I go, right. That that drove me mad. And then now it is, um, how's the drinking going? Oh, I've had a problem. Thanks for the programme. I mean, I've just had, you know, I've, I've just been a, like a one-person focus group, I think, for people's drinking problems. And it's been sort of harrowing and fascinating and encouraging, you know. And I remember when I first, it was my a psychologist I used to see who first sent me the link to the article that you wrote about having changed the conversation. And that, and that was a big moment for me. I thought, well, hang on, it, it, you know, perhaps I had sort of blundered onto something here um, with um, just reflections on my drinking. So, so yeah, so that's um, so overwhelmingly, it sort of, I feel something like pride for the fact that I did it. I mean, the genesis was for me, you know, I just, you know, I just, I just saw that so many people, not least me, weren't classically alcoholics, whatever that means. You know, didn't conform to the stereotype of, you know, drinking perno in the morning or wetting the bed or waking up in a shop doorway. So therefore, they thought they were fine. Well, in fact, well, on any level, I am not fine if I can't imagine life without alcohol. You know, so even if it's not doing any, me any harm, there's something not quite right there. And so I just, I just sort of went on from there, and that's, and that seemed to resonate with a lot of people. Absolutely, and I think you know what was so great about the show in in many ways, and I think you should feel pride about it without getting kind of cringy or anything about it. But it really does fundamentally challenge that false binary between there being alcoholics and everyone else and it does so in a way that just shows this is just about people and our lives and alcohol is a a very culturally normalized drug in society you know i just you know it's enjoy i just enjoy talking about something sort of meaningful like that and it's interesting to what extent that people see me with a drink in my hand 
people are are just totally what's the word um totally operate on this assumption of this binary thing either you're an alcoholic or you're not so they 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 can't compute with me that i just wanted to moderate and cut down if they see me with a drink in the hand it's like are you all right you know I'm, i'm sorry about your struggle you know my story isn't quite like that i'm not saying i didn't have a problem but, you know, just because I've got a drink in my hand doesn't mean I'm going to wake it up and skip that morning. You know, people just can't compute this idea of moderation because, you know, it is so complex. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think, you know, we've discussed this quite a bit. To what extent is moderation possible or not? And if so, for who and under what, what circumstances? And, and certainly that was my experience as well. Um, I didn't drink for most of my 20s. And, you know, I've been drinking for about 10 years now without any problems. But I do remember similar sort of things that when I, I told one friend I was thinking about trying to drink moderately, you know, she was just absolutely horrified with the thought. She said, that's a slippery slope. Why would you Why would you want to even do that? But it is possible for some people and it's it's that tricky issue isn't it of uh, you know you don't want to advise people who might have found abstinence or might want to aim for abstinence when that might be a better option for them but there are certainly people out there like you and I who can moderate I suppose. Yes I think one of the issues with moderation is that it is impossible to define there's no end point to it you know it is always a work in progress and this and this came home to me when I, I did an interview with the podcast with a therapist called John Macchia. And he does a podcast with a woman called Finty Williams, who's an actress who's had, you know, a, a great number of issues with alcohol. And now she's on the wagon. I talked to them and she said that night she was off to celebrate the third anniversary of her sobriety. And I, and it, a thought occurred to me and I said to her, so, well, you know, at least you've got an anniversary. You know, you and I couldn't celebrate sort of 10 years of moderation. You know, you couldn't have that kind of get together. We could. Yeah. Well, when does it start and when does it stop? But also, how much do you drink on a moderation celebration party? You know, it's a, so, you know, that kind of gets to the, that kind of gets to the root of it. Yeah. And I think that's the big issue. And certainly, I think when a lot of people start a process of changing or reflection or recognition of having an alcohol problem, then abstinence makes a lot more sense because that boundary is so clear. The goal is none and there's no kind of negotiating that. Whereas absolutely, as you say, moderation can mean anything to all sorts of people, including very heavy drinking. Um, For me, it's pretty much sticking to the recommended guidelines, um, which, you know, it could be a bit more and that would still be so much less than than what it was that got me into trouble in the first place. Well, on the guidelines, what I'd say is two things, two things on guidelines. Firstly, the 14 units is that most people, most drinkers go, that's ridiculous. I'll come to that in a sec. I mean, the first thing I'd say to them is, is, look, okay, if you can't get down that low, the difference between drinking 50 units a week to 30 units is massive. Look, just because you can't get it down to 14 is what I'm saying, then don't give up on the whole bloody thing because you'll be doing such benefit getting from 50 to 30. Now, that kind of gets lost. I mean, it's a much more of a benefit getting from 50 to 30 than there is from getting from 30 to 10. Absolutely. All the graphs show that, that the more you go up, the more the risk of liver disease and all the other things really go through the roof. So That's true. And also the other massive, massive mis- misapprehension, misunderstanding people have concerns the 14 units. You ask any drinker, any sort of committed drinker, so a drinker like me, I've asked this to 100 people. 
I've asked all manner of people, of, of all drinkers, right, what percentage are drinking 14 units or less? Right. You will not get a percentage in double figures even when you ask a drinker that question. They will say hardly anybody. Right. In fact, it's 70%. Right. Now, even allowing for a great margin of error and the fact that it's self-reporting. So, but look, even if it's wildly out, you can still say that more drinkers are drinking within the guidelines than aren't. Now, this is that's so important because that the public health message should be, and this is embracing the kind of social norm that the industry uses to shift more product. What we should be saying is most people are most drinkers are drinking within the guidelines. Like be one of them. Well, there's certainly a huge problem with, you know, as you say, normative misperception. I mean, we like to hang around with people that do the things that we do. So we kind of live, judge ourselves by the people that we, we tend to drink with. I mean, the, the guidelines are a public health failure in that, exactly as you say, most people who drink above them just instantly dismiss them either because they think no one sticks to them or it's an impossible target. So, yeah, I'm certainly of the view that we really want to communicate this this kind of more continuum type thing where it's not a threshold. And, you know, the basis for the guidelines really is if you drink 14 units a week, you don't increase your lifetime risk of an alcohol-related death by more than 1%. I mean, that's arbitrary to most people. That, that That's not a persuasive message, is it? So that goes back to the documentary for me, really. It's you need a kind of more complex and more personal story to communicate the nuance of it rather than these statistics and sort of failed public health messages. The statistics, though, do need to state, look, marginal gains are available here and they're not even marginal. Now, I once said, you know, Dave Brailsford, as I'm sure you know, is the, you know, the Svengali figure behind the success of uh, British cycling. And he, it was his doctrine of marginal gains, you know, in terms of, you know, what you can do to get that much more out of an athlete. And I once asked him in an interview if he could, you know, apply that to public health or real life, that doctrine of marginal gain. I said, so if you're trying to give up smoking, what would you say? And he said, well, if you're trying to give up smoking, if you're smoking 30 a day, Smoke 29 instead. That's a marginal gain. Now, obviously, I mean, I wouldn't argue with him, but smoking is different because I don't think anyone thinks a level of smoking is good for you. But in drinking, it's different. There is a key, per, there is a marginal gain. And they, in going from 40 to 30, but they're squeamish about, about going there. I think the presentation of the guidelines now doesn't work. Yeah, I, I agree. I suppose the challenge is that, you know, we need better messaging around it that takes accounts of those kind of social norms, etc. as we were just talking about. I suppose the other the challenge is that, you know, these issues are so complex. So if you drink, if you have a drink problem, however you want to define it, there's such a complex multiple set of factors that might be contributing to that, including, you know, common things like mental health problems or issues. So for some people, alcohol is a coping mechanism and that's what leads or is connected to the development of drinking problems. So I suppose the messaging side is always going to be a bit blunted by some of the complicating reasons behind drinking independency. That's true. But I think you know, even as a coping mechanism, if it's in control, then that's fine. I mean, so, you know, I do suffer from depression every now and then. And, and you know, I have a quite a significant ADHD diagnosis recently, which has, you know, um, has been pretty life-changing, really, although I've got, I'm still remain slightly cynical about it at the same time. But, you know, I find sometimes if I absolutely hit the bottom, 
you know, sometimes a drink, you've got to have a drink, we'll just kill it for the evening. It might kick the can down the road. But again, even the, this idea about self-medication is wrong. It depends to what extent you self-medicate. Now, if to self-medicate me, if it required me to go out and just render myself unconscious with 12 pints of lager plus chasers, you know, fair enough. You know, that's wrong. But if I can, you know, if I can just sort of readjust myself with a, with a pint, you know, an early evening pint just to breathe a little bit, then, you know, why not? Uh, I agree. I think it's an, another issue where we just can't draw a line between something being used in what might arguably be a, a positive way. I mean, we drink because essentially it makes us feel good. Uh, that's why most people start off drinking, let's be honest. And, you know, I drink having had past drink problems and a long period of abstinence because, yeah, one or two drinks gives me a mild pleasurable feeling and does alleviate a sort of mild level of anxiety that I have so I suppose the complicating question is when to what extent is that a good thing to be able to use alcohol to have a drink to alleviate a bit of anxiety or relax myself after a busy day and, and kind of measuring the line between the risks and potential for harm especially when you have a kind of background like maybe you or I do in terms of alcohol use and, and problems yeah um I mean so something I've come right bang up against and it was quite shocking to me is and I, I was going to call you for your view anyway. Is that I was talking to a therapist, she's written a book called The Kindness Method, called Sheru Isnad, I think her name is. But she'd helped, she'd helped a woman who I spoke to who's a, a moderator. This uh, a woman, a journalist called Marissa Bates, who's very good on the subject. Anyway, I talked to Sheru and I, I was talking, we were talking about you know what, not why you started drinking in the first place. I know that's important. I'm less interested in that. It's kind of what you drink for. And what I was getting at was what I've said to you before, is that the message that I've managed to get across, or rather when people talk to me, somebody says, I have a load to drink, whatever. I drink a lot. I say, look, that's fine. I'm not going to tell you not to. I'm not a doctor. But, you know, some guy came up to me, as I think I mentioned to you at the football, and he goes, I, I drink 50 pints of lager a week. You think that's too much? And, you know, first of all, I started adopting the stupid sort of kindly GP tone of, well, you know, you might consider cutting down a little bit, all that balls, right? Um, and then I thought, well, actually, all I said to him was, look, if you enjoy every single one of those drinks, if you love the bones of everyone from the moment you get it in the hand to the moment you ended it, if you love everyone, then crack on. Who am I to tell you not to? I said, however, you know, if you don't, then have a think about it. And he went, yeah, fair point, fair point. And I think if most of us, you know, this is the big thing for me. As I said to you before, I worked out that if you lined up all the drinks I've drunk in my life since I was 15, it'd be four miles long. Now, I just think how many of those, and the tragedy isn't so much that I've drunk all that, which can't be good for you. The tragedy is that what percentage of those did I actually want or need or enjoy? Right. And I don't think it's more than a third. Right? Now, if you can get, if you can just work out which drinks you actually need or want or enjoy and restrict it to that, then you're home and dry or not dry, if you see what I mean. But there, I think, I think that is the key to it. Now, I said this to this Cheru woman who agreed with me. But then as part of that conversation, I also, what I think is that when you have that first drink, which is the only one really that achieves a, a, a change of state in you, you have that first drink. I think all subsequent drinks you have after that are basically just habit. And basically, they are a futile attempt to recreate the feeling that you got by taking that first drink. 
Because what you feel for the second drink, as opposed to how you felt after just the first drink, is a negligible difference, right? The first drink gives you that good feeling. The second drink doesn't give you that. The third, a bit less. And this Sheru wholeheartedly agreed with this, that, you know, you're, you're, you're chasing this feeling. But then she said something which, which really hit home, and I haven't got an answer. She said, yeah, but what if you are just drinking for oblivion? And then I've got, I've got no answers then. I don't know what you say. I, I, I think most people don't drink for actual oblivion, but I can't support that. That's my hunch. But if you are drinking for oblivion, then I think, I don't know, I think all attempts at moderation are kind of going to fail because, you know, you're, you, by definition, moderation isn't going to give you oblivion. If you, if you enjoy drinking and like that feeling, then I think you can moderate because less is more. And that one drink will give you that feeling and you'll realise you won't need 10. But you're probably going to need 10 if oblivion is your purpose. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think I can relate totally where I am now in my life to the just having the drinks that you enjoy and, and so on. But, you know, my my entry to the problem drinking arena was, you know, I was I was a teenager in the 90s, binge Britain, as they as you might call it now, or peak booze when Alcopops were. Well, I was, in, I was a teenager in the binge 80s. And before that, there were people in the binge 70s. I don't know. I don't, know, I don't know which decades bingier. Well, in terms of just pure consumption, you know, 2004 was the peak and it was all kind of rising up to then. But, you know, certainly when I look back on, on then, it really was escapism, oblivion. And, you know, the way I kind of make sense of it is, you know, some of the issues that I experienced in childhood and finding ways to cope with that. I hadn't really made sense of all that. And alcohol was a way of really just, it felt like letting go of all this stuff that I'd internalized. Um, it wasn't until kind of in my late 20s and having not drunk for a while, doing kind of load of psychotherapy where I felt like I unpicked some of those past issues. It felt like I was dealing with that same sort of negative energy um, that drove the, the binge drinking, So, which really was destructive and drinking to oblivion. I think what also needs mentioning though is that the, is the context that again it's the social norms that all like I surrounded myself with mates who all like doing the same thing and it was encouraged and and you know it's normal when you're younger to drink more and to be more risk taking and to have more insecurity about your life and where you're going and all that kind of stuff but certainly from my perspective I feel like the more issues or insecurities or problems you have outside of alcohol the more alcohol is going to be used destructively or problematically and the harder it be to moderate. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I suppose I've got, I'm looking into the reasons why you drink at your core. I'm not sort of less interested. I feel less qualified to look at that than actual strategies for reduction, for harm reduction. And what I've realized talking to different moderators, there is just, you know, just as people drink too much for different reasons, people, successful moderators moderate in different ways. You know, the, no two stories are the same. No, I, spoke, I mean, to give it to two extremes, there's a woman I spoke to in Glasgow who'd been, you know, a, a serious binge drinker. I mean, just go completely mad, collapse, bang her head, blah, blah, blah. And I think there was a bit of coke involved and, and whatnot. But she stopped completely eventually. But she said she couldn't really feel as if she'd stopped until she could show that she could drink a bit. So now she drinks a bit. But, I mean, it's like four glasses a month, right? She just, you know, she can take it or leave it. Now, that's one way to moderate. But to me, that is different from somebody who still has the love of drink. I mean, she, she's so indifferent to it that she can drink or not. Whereas I spoke to a comedian called John Robbins, who was really interesting. Now, he, 
he, he's drunk an awful lot in his time. And a, one thing led to another. He thought he's got to cut down. I think his girlfriend left him, he told me. And then, but he did dry January one year. He said, because I think I've just got to. And, and then he had this big calendar on the wall he seemed to have with all the dates of the year on it, obviously, but a great big sort of business kind of calendar. And he'd been crossing off the days on it with a red Sharpie that he'd, uh, you know, all these alcohol-free days, which obviously there were 31 in January. And, and then he thought, well, I've done 31 days. I'm going to do another 100. So he just slavishly follows that. He does. He did another 100 days. So he worked out what days he wasn't going to drink and made them alcohol-free days. But, you know, the planning around them, you know, was incredible. He really had to focus. You know, and by the end of the year, he'd actually done 136 alcohol-free days. And the following year, he did a few more than that. But he thinks about not drinking. He really tries hard. You know, he can't wait to start drinking. You know, he, he, you know he, he's dying to go to the pub. He can't wait. He looks forward to it. Now, you know, nine therapists out of 10 will tell you, this is flawed. He's doomed. You know, he's, you know, he's not tackling the root causes. You know, he's putting so much energy into the, into, he's putting as much energy into not drinking as drinking. Then, you know, it's, it's never going to work. But, you know, I would just say whatever bloody works. Absolutely. I mean, there's different ways to moderate and it's could be days off in the week or it could be just, you know, how much you drink per occasion, dependent on the occasion. So 100% agree, you know, less is always more if, if you're experiencing or drinking at levels that might be deemed problematic. So so you're writing a book at the moment and it's kind of focused on these strategies. I mean, don't don't give too much away before it's come out, but can you say anything more about it? Well, it's a long, it's just exploring moderation. It's like looking, I mean, it's the kind of thing we've talked about. It's different strategies people have. Just little thoughts people have can be so valuable. And one guy, he actually wrote to me after I'd done my program. He's, he's, he's in his 70s, I think. He's, been a, he's an academic lecturer in sociology at Bath University. He's a big West Brom fan, is how I know him. And he wrote me a really interesting letter back at the time with his strategies. And one thing he, he said, he said, I needed to take alcohol before he moderated. I need to take alcohol off its undeserved pedestal in my life. You know, which is a slightly clumsy phrase, but that's so right. You know, the undeserved pedestal. It's important. It's not that important. You know, so he managed to drink less. It was just that little kind of thought he had, which turned it round for him. And I have that, you know, I sort of keep that thought I keep that thought in my mind. You know, I try and say that to people. I also think it's, it's working out when you think you've got an issue. I mean, something a friend said to me was, uh, she was a big drinker, and it was one year when I wasn't drinking for Lent or something, and she said, you know, without alcohol, the world's a very beige place for me. And I had two reactions. One was, yeah, I agree. And the other one was just how shameful. You know, I was walking through a park near my house, and the sky was blue, the trees were green. You know, I thought I've got a lot to be grateful for. No, I'm just not having that. You know, if alcohol has got me thinking the world is beige without it, then it's kind of got me. And I've kind of got to turn around that and, and, show, and show it who's boss. As John, um, as John McKeown, that um, therapist, said about alcohol, he said, you know, who's the gaffer? You know, who's in charge? Are you in charge of the drink or is the drink in charge of you? And I think that, you know, that's a good way of, that's also a good way of thinking about it is, you know, identifying when it's gone too far for you. I had, 
this Marissa woman said to me, you know, I've came to think alcohol was essential in my life. That, not just enjoyable or, or another word like that. No, essential. Now, if you're thinking it's essential to my life, then things have gone too far. But also, I think, I mean, to encourage people to moderate, I say the biggest, biggest motivator to moderate should be, ironically, your love of drinking itself. Because one day you're not going to be able to if you carry on like you are. Either you live or go, or you will get into a state where you are totally dependent and you are pissing your pants or drinking perno in the morning. You know, and I channeled something that, um, I channeled something that uh, Paul Cook, who's the drummer in the Sex Pistols, said to me. He's a mate of mine, a lovely guy, he's in his 60s, and he sort of drinks in my local. I spent quite a bit of time with him. And he was always asking me, oh, what about my drinking? I'm just, I'm having a couple of pints. You know, I'm like a couple of pints. Is that all right? I said, mate, it's fine. And I said, well, how come you weren't addicted to heroin? He said, I was. I was addicted to heroin. But how would you get out off it? And he said, I just don't know. I just did. And then he said something about heroin, which I thought was interesting. He said, the tragedy of heroin is that it was wasted on young dicks like me. When you really need heroin is when you're 18. You're totally knackered. You know, you can't go all yourself down the pub. Your legs are hurting. He said, when I'm 80, I'll be on the gear all the time because that's when you need it. Now, look, I'm not advocating that. And, 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 and Cookie had his tongue in his cheek. But the point is, you know, save, you know, make sure alcohol is available to you when you do need it. You know, because when I'm in my 80s, you know, and in the twilight of my years, my God, do I want to be able to go for a quiet pint then? Yeah, and I think that's... That's that's the challenge, isn't it? As kind of humans, we're not the best at thinking about and regulating our kind of behaviours. We're almost like the kind of mice at the at the dispenser of the the kind of cocaine laced water. You know, just keep pressing the tab because it feels good, and and that's kind of maybe evolutionary uh, in its in its nature in a, in a way. But yeah, certainly, if we could get people to recognise when. You know, their drinking might be heading in a problematic direction sooner than potentially you could uh, allow more people to enjoy alcohol in a way that doesn't cause problems than than needing to give it up altogether. At the same time, you know, we don't want to discourage, I suppose, abstinence altogether. A lot of people are very happy with abstinence and obviously reshape their whole lives around abstinence in different ways. And some people just quietly get on with it. But yeah, certainly when you're talking about the guy giving up heroin that reminded me of how most of the Vietnam War veterans used or were addicted to heroin during the Vietnam War and then nearly all of them when they got back home to, to America just stopped it all together and that is kind of used as a powerful kind of anecdote about how often these things are within our control and we're not bound necessarily by the beliefs of uh, kind of total loss of control when something maybe has become a bit of a problem. And I think the other thing that you're saying about moderation that I wanted to ask you about, when people identify these strategies and put them into practice, do you find, did you find yourself or do the people you speak to tend to talk about it getting easier with time? Certainly that was my experience that just the sort of AA saying of a day at a time works also for moderation in the sense that when you've made the decision to change and embed these strategies, the starting point can be really difficult, but just over time, it just becomes embedded as the new normal. Yes, it does. Yeah, it undoubtedly does. Because I just find the less I drink, the less I want to drink. I'm starting the same with food, actually. The more I eat, the more I want to eat. And I think it can be like that with drinking. I think what's important with drinking is, look, if things go a bit wrong for an evening or even a weekend or even a week, right, 
then you know don't despair don't throw the towel in you know you can find your you can rediscover your new normal there's too much shame associated with it then you think oh i failed sod it but you know what we haven't talked about is counting units and i still think that's absolutely fundamental to every aspect of it you absolutely have to have to have to count what you're drinking it's boring you know, it's tedious. It's, you know, it, it, it gets to your self-esteem. It's all about self It's all bad things, you know, but my God, it's essential. Or you just don't know where you are with anything. Absolutely. There's a bit in the drinkers like me when you're sort of lying on the bed berating yap because then you sort of throw the phone down, mind your own bloody business and badgering about units. Someone said to me, I hadn't thought of. It was one of my moderators, this woman Marissa. She said the trouble with the trouble with moderating is that so what she said, what I miss about drinking is that kind of what she called the fuck it feeling. Ah, fuck it, I'm just gonna go mad. Right. Now a bit of that is kind of helpful in life. And as she said, drinking is in a way, you know, one of the greatest exemplars of living in the moment. We're always told to live in the moment. Well, I mean, it does rather just show the limitation of that sort of doctrine or that advice. Because if you truly live in the moment, you'd, you'd drink 10 pints of lager, have 10 whiskey chasers and smoke 10 red Marlboro because you're living in the moment. So, but, you know, you know, look, I'm reducing it to absurdity. But there is, I think that's a fair point. I haven't really thought about that either. No, I agree, because I often think when I'm reflecting on my relationship with alcohol and whether it could still be deemed problematic in any way, I often think, well, if I had a week left to live, how much would I drink? And I'm pretty sure it would be quite a lot, not just because I only had a week to live, but I'd want to just live in the moment, as you say. So, what, One other thing, I've been surprised how many, and I use always for alcoholic now in inverted commas, but you know, recovering alcoholics who are either used AA but are generally of the view, if I touch a drop, then I'm done, right? Now, the the, the, I've, the question I've asked them is like, what intervention could there have been that could have stopped you getting that way, stop you ending up where you were with alcohol? Now, I expected all of them to say, no, it was always going to happen because, you know, I've got this gene or whatever. But none, none of them have yet. They've all said, well, I wish my doctor had said something a bit differently. I wish my family had said this. Now, I, you know, I, you know, that maybe they're kidding themselves, but I don't think they are because, you know, in other respects, they've acknowledged that yes, I did have a massive problem, and the only thing for me to do is not drink. But they all do think there's a moment where they could have been stopped going down that line. It wasn't absolutely predetermined from the moment they had their first drink. Now, Susan Laurie is a woman who she wrote a book. It was kind of self-published. It was called like from the got her to sober forever or something you know but she was you know she nearly killed herself with a drinking ruined her life and everything and finally managed to get herself back sorted and she said to me he said look to be honest if i'd seen your program when i was in my 20s it probably would have changed matters now i was like flattered by that but somewhat amazed she said it because i just think it's interesting that people do believe there is an event intervention might have been possible I mean, it's a huge question and one that is impossible to answer. But I think my experience, as I'd say, are similar, that most people, even if they 
believe that it's a disease and that that they are an alcoholic or however they interpret that, that it wasn't, you know, from the moment they were born predestined. So it goes back to that earlier point. There's no one single answer for anyone and we can never say what would have worked. And certainly for me and for a lot of people, it's that the wake up call of physical health problems that really triggers that change. And that, that seems to be the real powerful motivator for obvious reasons. But but then again, it's a, it's a spectrum. There's not, not everyone needs that kind of scary wake up call. And I think, again, that goes back to the power of the documentary. I think what it really did was destigmatize the idea of alcohol problems in the sense of just showing it as something that affects, you know, so many people in so many different ways. So it isn't about, do you need to adopt this alcoholic label or not? And that just opens up a bit of a more uh, open and non-stereotyped reflection process. Yeah, I think it does. And also, even if you look at it, and I think the important thing to get across is that the drinkers like me and the drinkers are kind of featured. Okay, even if you, I would say you have got a problem of kind, but you haven't got a serious problem yet. Even if you put the yet on the end, because the gateway to ending up, you know, drinking perno in the morning, waking up in the gutter, being the cliched alcoholic, the gateway is the kind of drinking I do. At some stage, you've been through, you've been where I am. You know, you, everyone has been through that phase. So, you know, I think that's the important thing to bear in mind. But, you know, a lot of people don't get that message. I mean, I've got a, a lot of drunks come up to me in pubs late at night go, I fucking love that programme. It's fucking brilliant. And I think, well, good on you, mate. I mean, I hope you, you know, if you're only getting like this once a week, then fine. But it, it wasn't just purely entertainment, you know. Holding a mirror up to, you know, holding a mirror up to human nature. I mean, it's great if it did, but the point was to do something with that information. I really think it did. I mean, just looking at the YouTube version of it, I know it's a BBC programme. I'm not sure it's supposed to be on YouTube, but it's had 1.6 million views and counting. So, yeah, I think it really caught a kind of narrative that really needs to be had. So just briefly, uh, do you have a timeline for the book? Uh, well, it's going to be too late for this Christmas, so probably the new year. But it's quite, you know, it's such a complex area. I keep learning new things and then trying to rewrite everything. I just need to sort of get it down. Get in touch, get in touch anytime, mate. Thanks so much, Adrian. All the best. Okay, mate. See you. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Problem Podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Alcohol Podcast. So please feel free to follow us or get in touch there. <laughs>